Hi everybody, let's answer an age-old question. Why is it so difficult to build great user experiences, especially on the web? How has the evolution, and in some cases the devolution, of tools and IDEs, programming idioms, a lot of organizational structures and incentives, and even conventional wisdom, led us to a spot where it literally takes heroics to build something fun, to ship something great, performant, accessible, that something that meets all the various criteria that we all have for what constitutes a really high quality user experience. So to dive into this, I'm thrilled to Dr. Cheng Lu, someone who balances a very deep understanding of the visual world with a deep understanding of software engineering and computer science, and has spent a lot of his professional career and his personal time looking into how can we make it easy for developers to build great user experiences? How can we make building great user experiences the default and not something someone needs to actively keep thinking about in the forefront in order to make sure something is delivered? So to touch upon all these topics, we're going to start at the very beginning, which is like that for many of us, how Flash was the starting point for our careers in design and development and the melding of it, and then how it all goes from there. So it's going to be a fun conversation. So sit back. Let's get started. All right, Cheng, great to meet you. And for the audience, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Kiruba. Uh, I'm Cheng. I used to work at Facebook on various projects. I used to work on React.js, uh, a little bit on Messenger, and then ReasonML, Rescript. And uh, right now I'm uh, at Apple. I started my career doing Flash, uh, which is how I actually met Kiruba back then all the way back when I was a teenager, pretending to be an adult on the Kirupa forum. That was a great time, very formative. And uh, here we are today. It's a pretty incredible uh, journey so far. Yeah, you know, one of the things I've seen you've been working on is a lot of front-end like activities. You know, have you always just gravitated towards the front-end in general, or is it just something that you accidentally stumbled upon? So um, <clears throat> I think I first started by drawing stuff on when I was six, right? That's, um, that's how I developed some like a, liking for the visual stuff, right? Uh, you know, um, at Facebook, I was a full stack person, but um, um, yes, I do seem to always gravitate toward the front end. I wouldn't say that's necessarily the influence of just drawing sketches or anything like that. The real influence was when, when my family and I immigrated to Canada and uh, we brought a lot laptop. It was like a French speaking place and I had no friends whatsoever. So I was just on my laptop. I think that's a, like a slightly stereotypical story, but it is what it is. And um, I was playing games and at one point that passion kind of turned into, yeah, you know, this game is not doing this right. Like, what if I make my little thing, right? And, um, and so, so there was a flash, right? So, so basically I was just, uh, um, I think I started with uh, either flash five or six, um, six being flash MX, right? For the OG people. Um, and, then, and then that was fun because you get to draw and then the scripting comes afterward. I mean, it's not the cleanest architecture or anything like that, but uh, you know, for, uh, for, uh, tiny to medium sized thing, especially as a kid, that was uh, that was uh, good enough, right? And uh, and and that kind of just like you know flashes on on the web, right? Uh, sure, you can you can compile to a, a executable, but I think nobody just nobody did that. Everybody's just putting an embed on the web, and there are many great portals on the web back then uh, for showing flash works, and uh, uh, Newground being one of them, and they're they're a few Chinese one I used to frequent one I didn't speak English or French. So, um, so and, and naturally the extension of that one flash kind of died is, uh, you know, you keep doing things on the web. And yeah, I, I did dabble a little bit on, in native too and all that. But uh, 
yeah, ultimately, ultimately, um, I would say uh, one of the throughout all these years, one of the things I've noticed is that the people who do graphics and who end up doing front end think very differently than people who start uh, with HTML and hypertext and do front end. But they do have some very different perspective on how they execute uh, certain things. So uh, I will consider myself more from the graphic uh, part that happened to do the hypertext part, I would say. I mean, the funny thing is, that's something that I've also noticed from many people I've met as well. And I don't have a good theory as to why that is. But one, you know, poorly formed opinion that I strongly hold, you know, is that because Flash was a, a great onboarding tool where you know that building a great application or a great animation, anything interactive, required a visual component and a logic and programming component. But because the visual component was familiar and was front and center available, it made it easy for people like you who enjoyed doing drawings and had more of a visual you know, mind for some of these things to be able to translate that into getting started by translating an idea and putting visuals on it. It certainly was the case with me. My, my interest was always around drawing and doodling and scribbling. Programming was never a part of it. And even when I was using Flash, I used it a lot for the animation capabilities. The programming part was a necessity. You know, it was a necessary evil I needed to learn to get my visual part of it done. But I always approached it from a visual first point of view is that how do I translate this idea I have in my mind, which is very visual, into something that can be represented. I think that approach, I think, opens the door for a lot more people where I am almost certain that if there was no Flash and I had to learn HTML from the very beginning as part of translating my ideas, I would never have done the things that I'm doing because it would have never logically connected. Like my awareness of HTML being a thing that would eventually allow me to translate something visually on screen and the massive hurdles involved in going from raw text in HTML to that would have meant that I would have given up a long time ago. I'd probably be doing more visual work in like Photoshop or After Effects or so on, but never in a tool that ultimately allowed you to create something that goes on the screen. So I do have, um, you know, this is something I think about too. And um, I think a lot of it, yes, it is absolutely the education that Flash gave. Um, and I'll tell, tell you something unrelated to Flash. Um, and, and this is not to start, start a platform war or anything like that. This is just, you know, take it as it is, right? Uh, I have my own opinion of these matters, um, but this is just pure observation data for you. Uh, back when I was on Messenger, I was mostly on the web part, but we sit, we sat next to the native teams, uh, Android, iOS, and the backend folks who sometimes did, uh, did, did their toe into the code bases and all that. And, and that was, um, I was immersing that environment for around four years at least. And you see people um, who freshly graduated go through pipeline in parallel and, and uh, you, you observe how they evolve and you see a batches and batches of these people switch job and coming back and all that. And they definitely, the, the people on the native side, for example, iOS, they definitely do end up talking about different things than the people on the web. That is absolutely true. It's, it, and, uh, it's sad how, how, how almost like there's no, no overlap between, between the topic when they ship a product. Um, and yeah, and, and this is reproduced across the four year, five years. Uh, I've been at Facebook. I've observed these teams doing the exact same product, shipping on different platforms with the same screen fact, like, like on the iPad, for example. And, and, uh, but anyway, uh, it, that's, I'm, I'm going to stop here, but yeah, we, uh, they do talk about, uh, lots of different topics. And I, I think, think back, uh, thinking back on Flash, this is absolutely the case. Um, 
one thing I remember when I was doing Flash was uh, there was this uh, programmer who was, who was uh, a parent, uh, sorry, a friend of my parents. And then he's like, oh yeah, you do programming too. Now it's nice to start young and uh, learn about these things. What language do you use, like C++ or anything? I was like, no, I use this uh, action script thing, right? And uh, and um, and he just taught, told me about like C++ and um, printing Hello World, right? And something that stuck with me throughout all these years is I kept asking him like, where are you showing that hello world? <laughs> like, and he said, well, you know, you, you, you put, you print it and then it goes into terminal. And I was like, but yeah, but like, where's the box around it? Right. Like, um, like, uh, is it, is it that C++ is so opinionated? It will put up an alert and, and draw the thing. And like the, there's a button and then you can click on it. Like you, you didn't even specify any handlers. Right. So, so I couldn't understand. <laughs> that mentality at all. But ultimately, when you go, when you tr truly start doing programming, like, you know, obviously uh, that clicks and uh, yeah, um, the mentality is very different. And on the other uh, other side too, like starting, um, starting with pixels uh, as a primitive, definitely builds a different, a different mental model that you use uh, versus starting with uh, on the web, let's say rectangles, I would say. Yeah, I'm curious to hear your take on why that might be the case. You know, one take that I always have is that let's say our human brain has a certain amount of capacity for being able to process what the present is like in the future and so on. What our present is really bogged down in terms of like technical details of like, okay, here's the console. I'm writing at the base level. Now I later add a layer of abstraction myself to go one level higher and so on. By the time we get to the point where I can now draw a circle with some text on screen in like a language like C or C++, and let's say I didn't use, I didn't know much about a great graphics library, so I had to learn the hard way how to do all of this. The amount of fatigue and effort out of energy out of you know, spent getting to that point would have gotten me to my, okay, I'm done. This is great. I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take a break now and then come back to it later. Whereas in flash, you kind of jump, you know, many, many layers of abstraction to the point where I'm like, oh yeah, by default, here's a pixel, here's something I'm drawing on screen. You still have a lot more mental capacity and energy to go deeper and go like, oh, can I make this move? Can I make this spin? How do I add sound? What if I want to share this with my friend very quickly and this, you know, create like this thing where, like, you know, the cursors from multiple people on the screen moving at the same time. It's almost like the opportunities and possibilities were just more open to us because, at least in my case, my naiveness in what isn't isn't possible was completely redefined by what Flash made available, obviously, because I didn't learn C++ or Visual Basic or anything before the scenes. Flash was my first experience of visual programming, essentially. So I had no concept of the complications and things that others had to go through. So it, I just took things for granted. And that, that, I guess, arrogance helped me in some ways when I think about what I'm doing now. So um, I thought about this a lot, actually. And uh, uh, there, there are like, as always, it's like a multidimensional kind of thing. But like, there, here are the few things I can think of that uh, allow you to, to you know, um, have visibility over the full stack and, and all that. Um, first is Flash. Um, <clears throat> It wasn't general purpose, right? Like, um, you know, you, you, you usually ship and it has a graphical component to it. You, you ship these interactive experiences. It's not for like a microcontrollers or like a, a scaling servers. That's a, that's one thing. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, suddenly the scope is narrower. So, uh, within that narrow scope, you get way more assumption you can work with and you get to make a way more polished tool because, you know, if you're a backend developer and hypothetically there's an action script for backend, like what is the stage there even for, right? Like it takes like 80% of your screen and like you drag and drop, what are you drag and dropping? And like the impedance mismatch is pretty huge there, but it's very low when you're, when 90% of the time you have to 
work with the drag and drop objects. So that's one thing. The other thing is um, uh, it was a it was like a ver ver a vertically integrated experience, right? So um, there was no scene that is the uh, that is considered as the, the glue between two projects. Oh, hey, um, you know this person on this open source component, I own mine, and then there's a glue, and ultimately. Um, as programming scales up, as you know, like as the dimensionality scales up, I think, who, who was it that said that? Richard Hamming or something? Like, um, it's actually mostly glue. So <laughs> it's crazy, but like the core component don't matter. You, you start uh, working with the glue and uh, it's about the topology of that glue and people go wild with all sorts of patterns that historically don't work out. But, but anyway, that glue disappeared when you're in a vertically integrated stack. Right, because they just talk to each other because they're supposed to talk to each other. That's one. <clears throat> that's another thing, and and also um, one extremely important part. Well, also the third thing is it was well executed. Yeah, and the fourth thing is uh, an extremely important part is that um, they are very good at controlling the entropy of what they're doing. They are very good at controlling the the complexity, and I do believe this is a trait of a graphics people too because they're pushing the boundaries. So, so it kind of pushes back against you. So over time, you know, you, you do that for five years and you learn how to force the entropy down. Whereas I wouldn't say that currently on the web we're, we're thinking much about any of these things. Like um, you think of a tiny thing and someone will blow it up into like a gigantic uh, 10,000 line of thing. And then the thing is you have, uh, people, people don't se seem to realize you have an absolute amount of budget for these kind of holistic thinking. Right. If, if you have 10,000 line, you need to start thinking about resource allocation. But if you don't think about resource allocation and you're making your own little component on the side and think that open source solves everything. Well, I love it. Right. And my career took off thanks to that. But like if you think that solves everything and you already blowed up to 10,000 lines, then suddenly that part, that little piece becomes a black box. Right. And now with the black box, guess what? You need glue. Right. You don't get to vertically integrate nearly as well. Right. So with Flash, like the amount of line of code I had to write to achieve the effect versus if I just roll my own thing is the difference is stark. Right. And um, to be clear, there's a lot of more code behind the scene that does the work. But but the ability to traverse the stack, uh, right, like you said, from from very low to very high. And it can it, it can output stuff at the low level too. like and also at the near it's uh, near the end of its life, it had like a some pretty cool 3D acceleration. Right. Yeah. Um, but the ability to traverse all the stack to like drawing the thing and uh, like actually making a component that's shareable. L nobody really did that, but you could share components too. But the ability to traverse that heavily relies on the fact that they they shrink the amount of code. Uh, they, they shrink the amount of thing like good enough here. Let's not double down on this because now the code size will expose 5x. Okay, let's do the, the next piece and the next piece. So if it all fits within 100,000 lines of code, let's say uh, you, uh, you for for professional, you can still fit that within a brain. Um, if not, you still have to uh, you you will still have to eject pieces, and and you won't have a full uh, holistic vision anymore. No, what you would describe essentially sums up like almost decades of extremes in IDE and framework and language development. When you know, we talk about vertical integration as a great example of it, with vertical integration, if done well. You get simplicity, you get ease of use, but you don't get the flexibility. You can't do all the things you might want to do. Like it was a long time, but if you wanted to create use Flash on the back end, 
for example, as like a headless app, there really wasn't the concept of that. You know, whereas with something like C++, where I'm starting from the ground up, I can go in any plus directions and pay the complexity cost as a result of it. And same with the lines of code as well. In many ways, like you mentioned, a lot of these things, what we typically call like base class libraries or, or core language frameworks, they're just built into the Flash runtime. So even though you're writing like two lines of code to make something animate from one side to another, probably a million lines of code were already pre-compiled onto the runtime itself that you do not have to see or worry about, which in a world where abstraction was not provided for various reasons, then you'd have to provide all those millions of lines yourself. and the typical tendency of developers and people like to tinker with things is that, oh, let me make a minor change here. Let me fork it. Now let me commit one dependency. And then you create fragmentation, which has its pros and cons. But if your goal is to have a simplified experience, you probably want to reduce as much of that. And what other point that you brought up that was that resonated is what Flash gave you was an opinionated, friction-free onboarding. You, you didn't have much choice. You could either choose between ActionScript 3 or ActionScript 2. And you had some very superficial changes around like frame rate and, and form factor, but those you could all change after the fact as well. So it just happened to have these things. But the idea was that you only have really one major entry point and then a few very minor levers you could pull to change your overall experience. And that was it. You were very narrowly constrained. And we could kind of see that playing out when Flash then evolved into Flex, where you now had the ability to see both the actual markup that generated the visuals itself. Because we knew there was markup being generated, but Flash hid that away. The MXML, you never could see in the Flash world. You, maybe you could later, but you never could see it for like typical things. And when, when Flex came out, you actually had all those exposed. You could actually see the, the build system. You could see the scripts that were running behind the scenes to compile your all your various actions from files into the final output. You could actually see the markup that was being generated. And with that, we saw a lot of developers kind of who used to be traditionally in the Flash world kind of fall away by the wayside because for them, the magic and the simplicity that Flash provided wasn't there because the big one was really the, the part we talked about, like the affordances. There's a common statement when it comes to development tools, which is like, you want to solve the problem in the domain you're in. So a visual task is best solved visually. So if you're drawing a rectangle, if you're drawing a circle, you want to use tools that allow you to draw a circle in a visual format. You don't want to take a visual item like a shape and then be writing like 20 lines of XML-like syntax to get that going. You can, and that's what people do today in the HTML world, but that's not how our brains have really been wired and optimized for many yeah. years. And so everything you touched upon here like really goes into detail on like the extremes and the choices that Flash made that made it successful and ultimately not successful as well. But uh, that part actually annoyed me a lot, <clears throat> the SVG thing. Like um, I actually, you know, it's, it's nice to know that how, how it works under the hood. It's, uh, it's good knowledge, right? And I always think like we should actually be able to uh, understand at least one good level uh, below us and one level higher. But like people tweaking SVG by hand is just like... Um, like you don't you don't you don't tweak a like a painting on a pixel per pixel or brush by brush basis, right? Unless you're doing some uh, statement uh, about generative art and all that. But like uh, people actually do that as a as a like a manual compression kind of a strategy, or like a, oh uh, this path goes there and it's just all XML and it just blows my mind actually because um because we're not talking about like a, you know SVG is not is not full programming language right so to speak and, and so like it's actually this is the perfect thing where you just slap a tool and, and then you you drag it 
attract the the stroke themselves immediate manipulate uh, direct manipulation right and the fact that people do it with code it's uh, you know how many kids are lost in, in uh, i'll tell you uh, you have lost me a long time ago if uh, this was the time to, uh, this was the way to draw it. and it doesn't scale right it scales to one icon and then 10 icon and in order to scale to 20 icon you start clamping down on like the the restrictions right it has to they all have to be this size they ha all have to be uh using all these line maximum uh, and you, you 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 force an uniformity upon them because there's a, that's the only way you can scale when you use that mental model and make a way of manipulating things. Whereas you're not going to make a single scene in Flash if you try to do that with SVG. Now, am I saying you you um you will like everybody should be making these scenes in Flash on the website? No, but like if nobody um you you didn't you didn't, you didn't even provide them a ramp to to go into that world realize that there's an entire world out there and then come back and then apply these techniques, the graphics technique to your web page and make it better. And there's a, like a rich world out there. Thankfully though, um, you know, this tradition has been inherited by, you know, the game people because they have no choice. It absolutely, besides text adventures and like idle games or whatever, they, it has to be visual. It has to be, um, it has to be interactive. Right. Um, think about the usual optimization that we, we reach for the web. Like people talk about this. They, they talk about this for the past five to 10 years, like something like static extraction of little snippets or whatever. Right. But it's like in a game, there's not even anything to extract almost like, like, well, there, there are some structures that are static, but like if your character moves and stays, stays still, for example, right. Um, it still has some micro movements and the tree, the leaves still blow in the wind a little bit, right? So you don't get to say, okay, let's make this completely static so that I, I can like extract some snippet into like this kind of declarative format. And, uh, but then like by then it, you're making something else in the game, right? Like, uh, so you end up making a web page. And, and so right now our experiences are extremely static. And, you know, if you go on Hacker News or these kind of sites where people are extremely used to these kind of static experiences, like the, the concept of transition like the way they talk about transition, like it feels like they're, they're, it's a, like a, it's still a bunch of teenagers talking about transition. If I can say that, like in a not not so nice way, like and they're like, oh well, the web page moves around, like and that's disturbing. And it's like, well, it's disturbing if it's done wrong, right? Because nobody's doing it well anymore, and it wasn't that hard to do it well either, right? I'm not talking about whether whether you scroll, like I'm I'm gonna fly some text over you or anything like that. That's like their the scarecrow argument they're constructing, right? Like it's. But we lost the capability of um, uh, doing tasteful transitions because nobody was learning to make transition in the first place and make the mistakes and come back and properly make that work anymore. Um, anyway, I, I don't want to go on a tangent too much, but uh, yeah, it's just topics that are always on my mind that I can get rid of. And, yeah. I mean, you know, our entire talks here are designed to be entirely on tangent. So actually, I really want to go deeper into this because... Our world around us is not static. It's fluid. There's movement. There's a certain, you know, speed to things. And a lot of things have been written over the years. I think Disney did a really good job characterizing like the 12 principles of motion to kind of provide a pattern to how we can represent movement in a very realistic way. And game development, I do think is probably one of the last frontiers today in many ways where you kind of mix the world of procedural, programmatic kind of visuals and static visuals and you have interactivity. And also a lot of openness that kind of gives that, that little bit of magic as part of what you're building. Because you really are building worlds in this case, as opposed to just purely a, I'm building a spreadsheet, or I'm building a cell in a table or a document, and, and so and on. The, and the requirements are so high that you, you, you don't get room to like 
um, to do to do like obviously unrelated weird stuff. Like you have to again need to push the pixels, right? You have to like uh, vertically integrate many pieces. It's not the best thing, but it does help you uh, teach you traversing the entire stack. And like game engineer, you, you often see game engineers who understand all the way from assembly to language making to GPUs. To, and then to graphic, to making game editors, to the game experience itself, right? And to the artistic aspect. Like how many people exist like that on uh, in web development? I would say very few compared to game uh, game developers, right? They, they traverse the entire stack because they had to compress this because the game uh, demands that kind of uh, um, things, right? Well, it's less and less true, but um, still the people who are pushing the boundary, they, uh, yeah, there are still generalists who can traverse the entire thing. Um, which might end in 10 years, maybe, but, uh, you know, uh, as long as you, we'll see about that. <laughs> yeah. But I think, which also goes to the challenge of, there's a lot more web developers out there mm-hmm. because you can kind of get away with being, you know, specializing in one particular area and making a career and building projects out of it. Whereas yes. a great game developer, it's very, very difficult to find. And many games, even simple ones, they have a team of developers. They have like five, six, seven dozens who specialize in each of these areas that are so deep that their entire mental capacity is occupied by that one particular task and then duplicated across other layers of the stack that others provide to contribute to create some of these high quality games. And yeah. that's the other thing about Flash I always found very interesting. It was easy enough and it did just enough damage to how quickly you can get something out that a team of one person can actually handle the full end-to-end of things and then rely on like sound resources like FlashKit had the really popular sound library back then so yeah i needed sound you just go there get their royalty free sound you're good to go there were all these font libraries that you get your fonts from so you had the ability to scale as well like one person with minimal knowledge or you know maybe some hours of effort can go from having no idea how to create something to being able to create something that is Semi-interesting, might be high quality, but at least it gets you closer than any other tool out there where after a few hours of tinkering, you know exactly what needs to be done. Yeah, um, hopefully Unity feels that role nowadays, but um, I think Unity is quite big now. And, uh, you know, the starting template is very, feels very different than like, like Flash. You're not drawing a stroke or anything like that. And also uh, uh, one real constraint is Flash being 2D. At the beginning, at least, it helped a lot, right? Because uh, if you directly go into 3D, I think you will have lost lots of uh, people because uh, now we're talking about modeling and polygons. And uh, um, then you're dragging, let's say, Maya. Like, obviously, uh, you know, I don't think many kids start with Maya or <laughs> 3DS Max. Um, but yeah, um, uh, um, if you if you look at the, uh, for example, I, I made a gallery recently, right? It's just mo- mostly a, like a symbolic kind of thing. Yeah. Um, like, the, the, I was... I would dare say that the transition in that gallery are not disruptive, right? They're not there to, uh, to wave in your face. Look at me, I can do this, right? Like I can put a transition there. Cause I, right. I, I, I it doesn't, it wasn't done like that. Right. It was, um, it was mostly hopefully tasteful and, uh, thinking in terms of just pages will have killed transition completely. And yes, I've seen like these kind of like, uh, you know, people ask me about like my opinion, like this kind of transition APIs, uh, right. Um, that magically transform between one page and another. Like it, it works for the web, like 80% of the time it's good enough, right? But it's not, it doesn't com- give you any mentality for working uh, with a transition. It's always, I feel like, um, you know, whenever these API come out, it feels like transition is like, 
okay, okay, fine, we'll have a transition, that kind of mentality. It's not like, okay, how do we design an experience like uh, some people used to say, some kind of storytelling mechanism, right? Um, like uh, the image is there and it is zoomed there because it has a purpose, let's say. It's an overly romantic way of seeing about this, but ultimately the, the effect that I give is, uh, uh, I think, pretty apparent. Um, and that gallery, you know, uh, that was also a, like a, like a proof that it can be done without any dependency, right? Not yet. Obviously, one day you're going to reach for something, but not for like something like that. Like it's a grid. Come on, right? Um, and that was without the data that was like 400 lines of code. I actually ask people to estimate how many lines of code it is. I ask various uh, developers from various framework communities and all that. And like their estimate blow my mind. Like they think like it's a 2,000 line plus dependency, 3,000. Someone said 10,000 lines. If you said 10,000 lines, then I think there's a very huge discrepancy between your mental model and what the mental model should be, right? And your your entire architecture, when you call uh, ordinary, uh, an ordinary web app in your company, your entire mentality is different, right? Uh, if it's 10,000 lines, then you, the, the architecture you choose, the code you choose, the dependency you drag in, kind of it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of the kind of app you build, right? It's kind of, kind of like a Conway's law before for a single person, for a single person's brain, right? Um, speaking of which, uh, allow me to go on another tangent. Um, I remember uh, Mr. Colin Mock, who was uh, very generous uh, with me. Like back then when I was a kid, pretending to be an adult using my dad's email. And I was just, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just sending him emails, asking questions about the book he wrote, wrote which is like Ashton script for Flash MX, the definitive guide. Right. Yep, that was so cool. And like, I didn't know O'Reilly back then. And there's this, this like eel that that twirled around, like it, it was green and it was nice, professional. Um, but no, he was very generous and he replied back lots of uh, lots of my email, and that also has been very formative in my career. I just wanted to give a shout out to to him to let him know that you know there's this kid with broken English that actually you know uh, did something, and uh, it was a lot uh, in large part thanks to uh, his generosity. Um, so uh, that that aside, like he also wrote a book called uh, Action Script, uh, Essential Action Script 2.0, and then Essential Action Script 3.0. The thing is, and those are good books. That they are like good manual, good tutorials, and all that. But for me personally, um, when I transitioned to Action Script 2.0 to 3.0, right? Um, I actually. I, and I use all these patterns, like MVC observables, like reactive this and that. Like that, that was like 15 years ago. And it just, there, there's, Flash makes you realize that you're not getting work done. Like pure code doesn't make you realize that. It's that, it's that much of an impact. Cause Flash is your ultimate integration and unit test. Cause you look at the effect, right? At the end, it's, the screen is always open. You build and the screen is open. And even as a kid, you, you iterate and it's just like, Hey, nothing is happening. What's going on? Okay, I don't understand MVC. Let me go back and like re-architect this code. And then you make another effect. And, and no, it's just that <laughs> nothing was happening in my brain. Like it, I just used to attach a script onto a button and and it worked, right? And I'm not saying that's the best architecture, but it scales surprisingly well. And uh, whereas MVC, uh, I think, and all these kind of things that's happening on the web, the problem is not that they can, they cannot scale up. I actually think that in some dimension, they can scale up. The big problem is that they cannot scale down, right? Um, because, because the activation energy needed to make one pixel work, 
one triangle, one button is huge, right? And when it's not huge, it's usually because they crafted a golden path, especially for that case and all that. Um, but anyway, uh, it, that, that, that was my impression of thing. And speaking of ActionScript 2 and uh, 223, like this is truly like a history repeating itself, right? Like sometimes we say that, but it's not true because um, it's not really similar what comes before and after. But for ActionScript 2, I had to remind people, right? It's literally based on ECMAScript. It's the same spec as JavaScript. They run the same way and they look the same way. So I'm not making a superficial comparison. And what happened with ActionScript 3? Well, they decided, hey, we're going to add a real class system and throw away the prototype <laughs> based inheritance. That sounds familiar, right? And we're going to add a static type system because we can optimize some code like that. And we're going to have a brand new VM. It's going to be fast. And this is literally TypeScript plus Chrome's JIT plus like um, whatever, whatever is happening nowadays. And it's just, it truly is history repeating itself without a stage anymore. But, yeah, yeah, it also just shows that we've been doing this for such a long time that we actually got to see this. You know, people often say that you've been living in a city for too long when a stadium gets built and it gets torn down while you're still living there. I think we're seeing the cool end of that in the programming world where we were there at the beginning when we saw the shift from two to three and how the, the gaps in the language and the syntax made it difficult to create high quality applications. So more guardrails and more formal formalities, I guess, were added. And then we're seeing the exact same thing, like you mentioned right now, with, uh, with how JavaScript has evolved. It just took almost 20 years to get to where we are right now, which I guess is the same as the Betamax, VHS, Blu-ray, you know, all these kind of com kind of com I guess like um, comparisons where it takes time for people to realize why we're doing some of the things that we are doing. But the, the fast feedback loop that Flash provided was something that was really magical in many ways. It was like you, you had the quote of the convenience of console that log that you get on the web today, but the output is not text. It's not just something in the console. It's actually in the context of your finished application, the actual movie frame that will be displaying your animation and the final creation. And agreed. I think when you always do it from that mindset, whether it is, we often talk about MVPs and making sure we ship products quickly and iterate based on real life feedback and so on. Flash made that more apparent the development lifecycle world where you didn't you almost never spent like more than a few minutes writing something before you hit control and enter and just make sure it worked properly in the flash play before you went along and did something else which is very different today because right now you're probably in a you know tunnel visioned into one particular problem for like maybe multiple days on end and by the time you step back and look at it, you're like okay this looks good or worst case i invested way too much time in getting to the state I'm going to sacrifice quality or performance or something like that. And that multiplied by 10, 100,000 times ends up getting us, in my opinion, to the state of the web today, which is the most average web page is about 1.4 megabytes or so. Some popular chat applications like 32 megabytes. And I'm like, what is going on there? Of course, 32 megabytes of dependencies and so on for essentially displaying an input field and a collection of text fetched from a, a database somewhere in a remote server. Yeah, and I agree with you. And some people, they was uh, they would defend uh, that uh, blow by saying, uh, well, first, uh, picture and video, it will take even more bandwidth, which is true, but we're not talk, uh, we're not comparing the same bits. Like 32 megabyte of code says something about your code base, right? Maybe a video is way bigger than that, but that's not the same, right? We, we can't compare it like that. That's one thing. It's an indicator of chaos and entropy in your code base. And then the second argument they will use is, um, um, 
Well, well, uh, along the same argument, they will say our computers have much more memory now. It's true, but again, like humans don't. Humans haven't changed very much, right? Um, one MB worth of code that I, I can handle, 32 MB, I cannot, right? And second thing is they, they say, they say they, um, you know, there's way more features now. Um, there are some newer features, but if you look at like the, um, some of the state of art in the past, even on iOS development and all that, like they, they actually surpass you in terms of features and in terms of polish, in terms of the holistic experience within a very small form factor uh, than whatever you bring on. Um, and, and yes, there, there are more features, but honestly, after having done this for a while, I keep questioning myself, is, is this super linear? Is it, is it really like that? Um, by my conclusion is at least in the scope of the web. No, it's not like you add one feature and it shouldn't justify like 10 megabytes more. Like it shouldn't be super linear like that. Right. Like 10 features should not. Yeah. Should, should, should at least... Anyway. Um, and also there, there aren't, there aren't that many more features. So, so to speak, honestly, like if you no. check the MSN days, right. MSN has more features than 95% of chat apps out there. Right. And, you know, the, it wasn't the prettiest thing because the design language back then was immature, immature right? Like it was gratuitous abuse of gradients here and there. But in terms of future, feature side, if you really think about what MSN did, like the emojis, the pictures, the, the videos, and like, the, the text, and the, the real-time status updates and all that, and all sorts of random, like, corporate kind of widgets that they, they cram into that, that is still smaller than the random corporate stuff that they were cramming into a normal, typical chat app, right? And... Uh, so yeah, I think, I don't know, it's just even MSN itself, like it makes me feel like red, uh, chat app now. And I wasn't saying IRC, I'm not asking you to go to the terminal and like cheat by saying, oh, I don't have to build an interface, therefore it's an order of magnitude less code because I don't literally don't draw anything. No, right, MSN was a full-blown native app with all sorts of weird Windows decisions there too, right? Um, they, they were, the programmer were not, were, were great, but like they're also not the ex extreme grade end of program or anything like that. So, because people usually say, well, you know, if you're an expert programmer, of course you can do that. But no, MSN was, you know, it was an app, right? It was not, not like, like the cutting edge or anything like that. So I feel like we can make a very safe comparison that there is real bloat going on here, right? It's not like, a, it's not very uh, justifiable. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, we can, we can talk about this a long time, but ultimately uh, it just, I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> it's about incentives as well. Yeah. You know, having been at Microsoft when the MSN app was rewritten and having seen some of the conversations around how to migrate from a legacy tech stack that was performant and it worked to what was then the managed code world where everything had to be rewritten in .NET and Windows Presentation Foundation and so on, which brought with it a lot of developer benefits. But no one would ever say that it was faster than a thing that it replaced. And it was so many layers of abstraction removed where I'm calling an API but API brings in like 80 megabytes of, you know, working set memory and things like that. And as a developer on these kind of products, you had to realize like, okay, how much bandwidth and political capital do I have to go against the grain on some of these things? Right? I just going to resign myself to the fact that, okay, I can control these things with limited amount of turbulence. And these things, I'm going to resign myself to the fact that how it is going to be done is the way it's going to be done. Because I'm almost certain that if you talk to any developer who worked on any app that ends up becoming like, you know, 32 megabytes of JavaScript or extremely slow and sluggish performance and so on, they'll all be the first one to say like, no, I care about 
quote quality. I care about very compact, minimal things. I care about user experience and so on. But it's the typical death by a thousand paper cuts. And sometimes it's actually a gigantic, you know, chainsaw. It's going to be things where you just can't control it. And you're just going to have to resign yourself to the fact that, yes, I want to do a great thing, but my hands are tied because of organizational dynamics, just technical headwinds and other complications that the user is not the primary motive for we're doing things. There are other complications at play. And the thing is like that Conway's law actually applies bi-directionally um, um, for an organization. And one argument that people will reach is, hey, look, if it's a good dependency and all that, why does it matter, right? And, and for an MVP, that does not matter. But the thing is, Right, well, because some people may say, might say, like uh, in that 32 megabytes of uh, uh, MB of stuff, like a good 25% are dependencies. That that doesn't actually help. As a matter of fact, when I try to code and I try to stay honest with myself and like count the line, transitive dependencies in the line of code, yeah, um, because you, uh, it's not true that you can eject that into into somewhere else. Um, and then not worry about it. As a first naive approximation, if your function is very complicated and it's a hundred line, you can wrap it yourself into a single function call, eject, put, put literally put that uh, uh, code into node module if you want, or like a monorepo kind of style, whatever thing, right? And you will say, oh, it's one, one single line of code. Why do I need to count the, 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 the extra hundred line of code? But no, that, that should not work like that, right? At least your first layer of dependencies, not a transitive one should absolutely count toward you. Um, when they don't, you, you end up creating these artificial boundaries. And the thing that people never talk about is that you might accidentally slice your entire mental model or worse, your team structure or worse, your in, inter-team, intra-team organizational structure across these boundaries. Because the moment I eject dependency, this becomes something that can be maintained at least superficially, like in parallel by someone else. But I don't know if that's the right boundary to divide my code. I just know I wrapped it because I don't want to see it too often. Right. And so that cross cutting really ends up like, like I said, a reverse Conway's law. It ends up dictating, you know, uh, the most uh, famous example would be something like microservices and all that. But it's, it's true for MVC too. Like, uh, like, you know, at, at one point, you know, you, you end up with, people thinking that, uh, oh, I can uh, maintain this independently of that part of the, the, the view and all that, but it's just never true. Um, and at least it's not true if you want to do a great job at it. One thing I think we don't teach in computer science uh, schools uh, or in the industry, really. One thing I don't think we teach in school or in the industry in computer science is what we do teach how you should modularize code, right? You should, how you should encapsulate code and, and, uh, and uh, split things apart so that they are easier to iterate on. But we never teach someone to centralize code, to properly recognize that this is a problem that is centralized by nature and that you're not supposed to try to divide this into smaller pieces. Because if you do, you're gonna succeed and it's gonna be even worse. Because the centralization nature still exists, but you just pretend you don't see it anymore, right? Um, I, yeah, I, I see people like divide these code into two pieces, and like I ultimately they're like, well, you can work on, on only this file, but but then what the truth is, and people know that it's the truth that like you just end up jumping between file and file, and oops, at that point, like this part 
ends up being used by another call sign and it calcifies forever because you can no longer change it. Yeah, it, it's, it's a big tension between what is academically the right thing to do versus practical knowledge. I do find that, you know, every discipline, when you talk to someone, they always talk about the same thing. It's like what they learn formally and what is being done in the real world often don't fully match up. Maybe because I'm just so close to the space working with computers and also having gotten a computer science degree, I find that the feedback loops never quite get closed in computer science. I still feel like today, even now, people are being taught patterns and ways of doing things that are completely decoupled from reality, especially when you start thinking about how do you scale an app beyond just a, a particular class project or something that's just being done, worked on by me and my college roommate or something to a group of teams, distributed time zones, different languages, and, and all these things. How do you maintain coding standards and, and proper ways of engineering practices that just cannot work if you apply an academic lens to it? Or sometimes you just have to be in a situation where suboptimal solutions are the right thing to do for the long run. Well, it's like a greedy algorithm, right? So uh, sometimes it does work out and people refuse to acknowledge it, but the greedy algorithm absolutely is probably uh, one of the best way to do things in many cases, right? Especially um, when you're confronting like unknown information in the future and all that, right? Um, academia work a little bit differently and, and like um, the end goal is a bit different. Like I remember, um, to be fair, this is true in the current industry as well. Like, uh, but they, they will make an app and somehow the entire tutorial or the, inter the entire class, there was not a single screenshot of what the app looks like, right? Steve Jobs famously said, you gotta go from the product back to the technology, right? Um, you know, I, and I've been in the React community and it's, it's a little bit worrisome for me to see that all these new tutorials on Medium or on, in their, on their blog or whatever, they can show an entire coding pattern Right? They can show an entire coding pattern and not show a single screenshot. Like uh, they, there's no discussion of whether the button should be placed here and there. For them, it's almost like a different discipline and that there's like a real cut there. And it's, uh, it's pretty uncomfortable to see actually because um, uh, um, you get, start getting misalignment. Of, uh, uh, Agreed, because the end result is you're building for other people. You're building for human beings and humans are visual creatures. If your final output it's going to be something visual. I would expect the first thing to be emphasized greatly would be the final user experience. What is the initial state look like? What are the transitions when you hover over something? What are the, when you navigate from, what are the error states? Things like that. I think more formal applications tend to do a pretty good job with this kind of stuff, but most people as you're learning, that's the point when they need to be introduced to best practices, not much later on. Because once you learn things the wrong way, it's very, very hard to retrain and unlearn something unless you have a strong motive for it, which as we've seen, the motives are never strong enough. No matter how many incentives you throw to people to do the right thing, we can see that with Chrome and their core web vitals and trying to index search pages, higher rank, give them higher ranks based on performance and so on. That I think is one step in the right direction, but we need to go even more fundamentally. This is part of you building it. If your mental model is, I'm gonna just do an NPM package install that's gonna add like 200 megabytes and of that maybe 10% of it will actually be shipped to the user itself. It's not a developer time dependency, it's actually a, a runtime dependency. Those are things that are going to become core to how you think the default world behaves because you're gonna be like, that's how you've always done it. I'm not going to bother changing. And that's the hard part. I don't know how to encourage good practices when at the very beginning, because it's not easy, nor is it fun sometimes. Well, um, 
Um, there, there are several things I want to talk about regarding this. And, and you're right. Like just because it's uh, you can, um, just because you can dead co-eliminate, um, doesn't mean it working it works in your mind, right? Like I go into a file, I can't dead co-eliminate my mind. <laughs> like I, I just see the entire freaking file. And when I debug the thing, I can't really do that either. And and so like I, I think that's a very um people who drag in too much and then say, oh, we're just using that and tree shaking will take care of rest. Like I think that's overly naive. That's like a very small subset of what I care about. Right. I need to be able to read the code and, and like, um, and, but the, the thing you dragged in, like it does 10 things. And like also that version of like this bug and all these kind of concern that you're, you're not putting into your uh, theoretical model. Right. Well, one problem we have, maybe, maybe we can be a little bit more specific about this because uh, I don't want to sound like someone who, who have, who rehashed these arguments that I'm sure like people have heard lots of time. One real problem is is it seems to me that lots of uh, this is not something beginners do. This is and this is not something that lots of senior programmers do. It's the 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 bell the middle of the bell curve. The people who became um, are becoming good programmers, but not yet. Um, they do, which is um, they have this extreme tendency to compress things, to prematurely compress things. If you model your let's say your knowledge uh, of of your code uh, like a as you write as like a just let's just say a, a stream of things right and they, they will compress the first few bits see the next few bit compress that and that and then it kind of calcifies your compression algorithm right because you, you're not seeing the holistic picture like you're not supposed to prematurely compress that early on right like lots of these abstraction i, I would say like maybe 95 percent of these abstractions they're not actually abstractions they're just like um pretty poor encoders yeah um and that is actually still okay. But the thing is, we have not learned how to decode in the industry. Like, um, if you have A and B and then you encode in a certain way and C comes in, and, and if, if there was no encoding at all, then you would have encoded A, B, C differently than if you just had A, B and then plus a C appended to it, right? And so what's the right thing to do when C comes in is for someone to do the pretty brutal work to go into that decode first, right? And then re-encode, right? No, but, but nobody will do that in a typical code base, right? Because obviously in the industry, this is just way too much trouble. So the only thing you can do is just to delay that encoding as much as possible through simplicity, through like performance by, by default and not trying to reach for some weird patterns and all that through ultimately the only thing you can rely on is through low entropy, which is you do exactly the thing you do, right? Uh, with no decoding, uh, with, with no pre uh, premature encoding steps, right? So to speak, compression, um, by encoding, I, I, just, just in case we, we lost the track of th thought here, but uh, by encoding, I meant compression, I meant uh, abstractions and uh, all that, right? Um, uh, excessive reuse of like two lines of code, for example. Um, and so the, the only way we can do that right now is to, to just delay that so that somewhere in the future, um, hopefully they're smart enough to know when they need to actually start compressing things, right? Because the moment they do it, you can trust nobody else is going to go and redo it unless there's a rewrite, unless some engineer first go, go into that path, but that's not really aligned to anyone's performance reviews, so, so to speak. The, when you say I've been deep compressing someone else's abstraction, I've been inlining things, but we know it's the necessary thing to do, right? It's just, nobody's going to do that on a larger scale. So what, um, 
what what can we do about this? Well, I, I don't know. Like maybe we do need some kind of automatic tooling. Maybe we need some kind of language paradigm that 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 does that for you. But maybe we need something that is uh, well, you know, like AI is a little hot. I, I don't want to dive into that too much right now. But like, um, you know, the more you look into AI for real as like an engineer, not as like a philosopher or kind of like a user, but as an engineer, you realize well, essentially, it's about compression, right? It's about search in a multi-dimensional state space and going to the lower entropy position as much as possible. Like the, the whole purpose of back, uh, backprop is kind of that, right? And uh, uh, I saw a very good blog post uh, recently where they train a neural network to do just binary addition and see if it converges toward uh, like a binary adder in a, in a CPU. Uh, turns out, no, it, it, it converges towards something that exists before. And, and, and that and that was designed by human, actually. Through, um, it, they turn the analog signal into the digital ones and, and, and do all these sorts of transformation. And then you, it, then, you know, it clicks for you that, that they, they are able to reach that low state of entropy. And the good thing is when you retrain them, uh, basically, it's a natural decompression and recompression, right? So uh, unfortunately, in our current industry, the only usage to control these entropy, which will be a great tool to teach newcomer, is cyclomatic complexity, which is not much. Nobody really uses it, right? Um, everybody knows, well, if you have too many if, <clears throat> if else's, you should do something about it. But the thing is, cyclomatic complexity doesn't understand your code. It doesn't know that it needs actually 10 ifs, right? It just says, that's too much, please, please break it off. And all the people I've seen who use that tool actually <laughs> they just break five of the if into a different function and then it calls it a day. But, but then now I have an extra layer of indirection and, and the actual complexity that I have to read again. Right. So, um, so yeah, uh, I just, maybe we reach the, the most we can do, uh, with a human in the loop with that kind of traditional coding mechanism and that traditional theory, uh, stem from math, um, of composing these kind of abstraction and then, uh, scaling them up. I, I don't know. But um, uh, Andre Carpathy has a good uh, blog post about a uh, very controversial blog post about software 2.0, where one of the point is that uh, it actually scales down and up homogeneously and it, it gets to redo the entire thing. Yeah. Um, but we do not currently in the industry have the financial incentive to hire a developer to undo the previous developers, so-called abstraction in order for the next developer to redo it. Because what, what is, you know, what is my incentive here, right? Uh, getting back to what you talked about, let's tie it back into the example you just showed of your gallery and like the way you used it. There are a lot of very subtle details that are very nicely done. You know, on the surface, I can I see a grid of images. I'm scrolling down and up. I can see the content is loading as needed. So it's not a case where my entire DOM is being polluted with a lot of elements. Only on an as needed basis or thing. Virtualization done really well, essentially. Then there's the other part where when I'm hovering over each image with my mouse, there's a slight magnetic drag-like effect where it's not just a simple hover, it actually tilts slightly and even shifts a bit, almost as if my hands are a little sticky and, my, and I'm slightly moving it over as part of all these hover effects. So it's very nicely done in that side as well. And of course, clicking the image takes me to the, the size of my viewport and then I can see just enough of the next and previous images so I can navigate between them. So the affordance for that is really there as well. You talked earlier about, you asked people how many lines of code was written to basically, you know, create this, but I don't think you ever answered it. How many lines of code did it take for you to create all of these effects? So um, 
So it's a single HTML file with no comp uh, compilation built for the iteration speed. Yeah, um, people might complain it's not in TypeScript, but look, I've done a programming language for statically type, and I, I dare I say it was the type system was pretty good, right? Thanks to your camel folks and all that, we forked that off uh, from them. Uh, but <clears throat> but no, the iteration speed is just that much more important. Then, yeah, sure, we'll add TypeScript once it becomes like a real project. Part. Sorry, the dog is. Yeah. So how many um, how many lines was it? Yeah. So if you exclude the data, which can be arbitrary large because it could be yeah. million, image million lines, right? That's all in line. But excluding data, it's around 400 to 100, 450 lines of code. No dependency at all, including the styling and no weird tricks where I put like uh, where, where I try to minify manually or something like that. Right. I didn't use a prettifier. Uh, uh, I didn't use sorry. Uh, I didn't use prettier on it or whatever, but um, it will be 400, 450 lines of code. No, it's very impressive because the thing that got us started on this conversation in many ways was, I, I believe someone shared the latest UI from Netflix and how it looks and so on. And I made the off-the-hand comment explaining that this kind of UI on the web is very difficult. And I and in your reply back said it is, but you can pull it off if you decide to rethink how you approach a lot of this by doing what you do. And you gave this example. And so, so I was very impressed because until then, I never saw anything quite like this that was done at the size you had it. You know, people with WebGL, there's a lot of things that people have done over the years to mimic that. But the, I look at it in terms of like, can I understand it if I look at the source code and maybe build it myself at some point? Yours was the only one where I'm like, this is really nicely done and it's logical, it's clever, it's not 10,000 lines of code, it's not WebAssembly, it's none of that. It's just straightforward HTML, CSS, and JavaScript modifying the DOM. Can I just say, well, uh, folks like you and uh, like uh, uh, Mr. Colin Mock, and, and actually there was a guy called Tony Puff with the tile-based tutorial and all that. You, you folks help a lot in my formatives here. I just want to say that before I, I dive into the explanation of it. I, I don't think I will have been able to make something like that. I'm quite proud of it, even though it's just 450 lines of code. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and um, well, uh, first, is uh, people uh, some people who know how this works? They might they might have a few criticism of that. So they will say, "Look, this is a, like a mostly homogeneous kind of app, and it's not much text. It's not like a very webby." And I was like, "Come on, it's webby enough." Like I I, I didn't even reach for GL, like you said, right? <clears throat> and uh, to them, I would say, like, um, if I, I ever have time, I actually have a demo that a few people have seen already that is actually more text based, and that is. Hopefully, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Like you can see that that also is quite a few lines of code, and it's a, like a full blown web app, and it's not just like a single gallery uh, with some local maximum or anything that people think it is. So, um, so yes, one uh, one of my goal is first use that use idiomatic web technology for it. Not that I think idiomatic web technology is the end goal or anything. Sorry, <laughs> the the dog is. Not that I think idiomatic web technology is the end goal of anything, but just because this is the most swallowable thing for people. Like if you're doing GL, people, uh, people will just say, oh, well, it's GL, right? Obviously, but, but they, they don't know what that means, right? But they, they'll just you use that excuse, right? To say, oh, obviously if it's GL, then all bets are off. No, I'm doing it with idiomatic web technology. There's no canvas involved. There's no GL involved. It's all, it's all like a, a traditional web APIs actually. So that's one thing I care about very much. The other thing is uh, performance has to be good and the UX has to be good because I don't want people to dismiss it by saying, like I said earlier, like, oh, well, I don't want these animations anyway. No, you can know that these animation actually helps with establishing where you are in the gallery, right? 
uh, as opposed to many other gallery, you press the arrow key a little bit too much and you're like, where am I, right? When you dismiss it, like, oh, where is the image, right? In my gallery, when you dismiss it, when you go very far, right? It dismisses back into the place you should be, which is wherever that image zoom out uh, um, to. So, um, so actually you talk about that hover, um, hover effect for the mouse. Well, um, you know, design wise, like from a UX standpoint, the thought process is, you know, um, you, I, I want to indicate to people that it's clickable, right? Most people know it's clickable, but it's, it would be nice because people uh, move their mouse across the screen and then suddenly start thinking, uh, start moving toward them and they're like, oh, I guess they're, I can click on this because it's inviting me to click on it, <laughs> right? And it's sort of like a typical flash trick too. Uh, but actually, I would say the thought process is actually the other way around. It, it goes a little bit deeper than that. And this is actually, I'm, I'm very happy you asked this question. Not many people actually ask that particular thing. Um, and I'm very happy to talk about it, which is that I actually didn't start with the UX in mind, right? You, I, you should absolutely start with the UX in mind. But I, my goal was actually entirely different when I was making that gallery. The hover effect is, and, and you know, you, you've been coding for a long time, so you know what I'm talking about. If I... The hover effect, first of all, it's not accomplishable in just pure CSS as like a discrete one-off, right? It's not like I hover and then it goes like 10 pixels above and then when I hover out, it goes below. That can be encoded as like an animation, like a CSS, declarative CSS thing. I wanted to avoid that. I wanted to avoid that because I don't want people to reach for these kind of very strict local maximum. And the other thing is because I have to uh, change the image at all time, I am forcing my code not to prematurely optimize toward that particular direction I was talking about earlier, which is like, let's say static extraction of things. I started with the code and none of the visuals, again, not recommended to, for real apps, but I started with just the code. And, uh, you know, I think about the, these React patterns, Vue.js, Svelte, Backbone, or, and like jQuery patterns and all that. And I, I try to find the patterns that socially right? Not technically, but socially over the last 10 to 15 years have pushed people toward bad code, toward, um, toward a kind of code that is, <clears throat> that seems uh, good, uh, in the short term, but not really. And one of them would be like, oh, let's have this kind of ni nice little constrained environment. Like, but it's just a button, like, and, and then I have these, these kind of CSS declaration, right? But, but then a designer comes on and tries to adjust a single pixel and you have to switch the entire paradigm, right? And you're like, <clears throat> most of the time, this doesn't even happen. You wouldn't switch. You would just tell him off or tell her off because we can't have that effect because the, you know, like that's not how our SaaS pipeline was built or anything like that, right? <clears throat> So I don't want, like, for example, you see these kind of CSS stuff that statically extract their snippet, uh, part of it, whatever. I don't want any of that. So I basically showed a good UX. I, I try really hard to find a good UX that goes against all of these existing frameworks. So uh, I, I think that, that was to echo what you said about how can we start fixing this? It's by showing these kind of UX and show it to them and say, well, do you want this or not, right? It is good. It is a mature transition. It's not like I'm trying to show off. It's not disruptive and user definitely feel an impact of this, right? Do you want this or not? If so, you cannot use this, this, and that paradigm, 
right? It you cannot even virtually diff the whole thing because, um, right? This is the core proposition of React. To, to be clear, I, I worked on React and I I love it, uh, right? But um, I think people are too religious about this. One of which is the virtual DOM diffing part, right? Where uh, you know you have a let's say you have a list of uh, items like in the gallery, right? And you you go over them and you you render into virtual DOM and the virtual DOM will diff between the previous and the, cur uh, the current and the previous snapshot and say, did it change? Did it change? Did it change? Well, yes, yes, no, yes. Okay, well, that's three yeses. So we only need to surgically manipulate these three things. But people are not thinking in terms of latency. I came from a flash background, graphic background. So I sit thinking in terms of latency. These things, like what is the worst case behavior? Well, all six items change. And so what is the virtual DOM doing there? Nothing. Right, because ultimately it goes over six items. Did it change, did it change, did it change? Yes, 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 yes. And then you have to change the entire thing anyway, right? So so basically, let's say your frame is like uh, um, 15 milliseconds. You barely crammed it into 15 milliseconds at 60 frames per second, right? Virtual DOM made that 15 milliseconds in the best case scenario into two milliseconds, which is great, right? But then in the worst case, when things do change, it turned that 15 milliseconds into 17. And now you're starting to drop frames. And so how do I fix that? Well, I have to remove the virtual DOM. <laughs> so, so basically, but, but there's no way to convey that anymore. And when I say that to people, they're like, ah, whatever, right? So I basically, that entire gallery and the previous demo and the next demo and the demo that's coming up, which is a more traditional web app, they all reach for these kind of user experiences that where people, where developer would say, yeah, I, I think that's good to have as a user experience. And also they will at the same time say, I guess we really can't afford these kind of like caching strategy, like golden path driven, kind of like a, a throughput driven uh, backend programming strategies, I would say, right? Because backend is much more about throughput than latency most of the time. Um, <clears throat> so that, that started with my graphics perspective, because for me, a frame drop is a bug. For most people now, a frame drop is just like a, a P4, P5 or whatever your company calls it, which is like, we're never going to fix it. Right, because it's part of the web. Obviously, you're gonna draw frames, right? But no, it doesn't have to be that way, right? You you get to um, if you coded the worst case already, then you don't have to debug nearly as much, right? You don't have to do performance tuning. I barely open the performance profiler for this thing, right? Most people most people also don't use the performance profiler, but if you want to achieve that kind of result, you definitely have to profile it a lot. I barely use the profiler because every time I'm actually just wiping that virtualized region and redrawing these cells. So I know in the worst case, that will be that will still fit within 16 milliseconds. And on a, 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 a MacBook Pro M1, M2, it will be 120 frames per second. Except Safari, which caps request animation frame at 60, but that's another story. Um, so and people will be like, well, no, well, most of the time you're not reaching for these kind of interactions. So that's why I add even more interactions like that. So when you click into the gallery, that's the, the whole 2D grid flies into a 1D one. And when they fly like that, everything's changing all the time. And when you drag your uh, native scroll bar, because I didn't recreate a scroll bar, right? When you drag it down very quickly and you have, let's say 10,000 images, there is no incrementalism in any of that process that you can leverage. There's no cache. All your cache are bust frame by frame all the time, right? Because the next time you drag, very likely the entire uh, uh, region is redrawn, right? So we, there's no reuse you can, you can reach for, actually. So, so that, these things, I don't have to think about them 
I did think about them, but I don't have to code them anymore, right? Because I all already catered to that worst case scenario. If everything changed, it's the same as if nothing changed for me. So that's part of why that hover is there. Because when I hover, maybe all the maybe a designer will come and say, well, actually, in the future, maybe the neighbor um, images will also kind of move toward you if it's not too disturbing, right? Then I don't have to code that specially, right? You don't have to say no to the designer because you use a CSS pipeline that's way too rigid for this extra incremental UX change that is a huge delta of code change, architectural change. So, so it worked like that. Basically, it's, it's like a game engine, but like a web render loop in that sense, right? Because um, you blow away lots of things and, and then, then you try to optimize against the, 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 the upper bound the worst case scenario, and what are the optimization that actually do work uh, in this case? Well, like you said, virtualization, which is just occlusion calling for, for if we're speaking normally, right? I'm not sure why we call it virtualization nowadays. Uh, there's nothing virtual in that demo. Uh, this, and then um, also just making the data structure very fast and lean, right? Um, and I don't actually, if you look at the code, I don't, you know, when there are loops, I don't even use a break statement. That's because, because it's so ingrained in us that, well, um, well, if you break early, you get to save some CPU budget, right? But the thing is, in many of these cases, if you break early, you also end up with a pathological case where some other kind of uh, uh, effect or code kind of um, claim that resource. You know what I mean? That performance resource. And what you do need to iterate over all of them, let's say because it's the last image. People don't think about that, right? Uh, because some process makes you so that you iterate the entire, through the entire array and you, it, your user is hovering over the last one. Well, then suddenly you're, you're, you've exceeded your frame budget, right? So I don't break. So hovering over the first image has the exact same whatever logic that is, hit testing, uh, zooming or whatever, then hovering over the last one. So I don't have to go scroll down all the time and test against my last image either. And, and people will say, oh, well, that's, that's a different mental model. Is it hard to learn? Well, it is something to learn, but the code actually becomes simpler because I have very few if statements because what kills latency and what causes frame drop and inconsistencies are the if statements, right? Very fundamentally, it's when your control flow goes into that passing up instead of the other one. Right, that's what causes frame drops. So when I don't have if statement, all my code becomes simpler because I have nothing to debug. It's like linear, right? I don't have to step into a debugger and say, well, is that condition true or not? The only if statement I have are the like essential ones, like is it in one D view or two D view, right? So all of these, I actually now now we circle back to the initial topic, which is graphic and all that. But all of these are graphic programming techniques, like GPU and shading shader programming techniques, because you don't get to say. <clears throat> When you have an order of magnitude more pixel, you don't get to say, well, if this pixel is that, that pixel is that, forget about it. You're going to be able to draw 10 pixel and like you'll never have a game, right? When you have, when you have a million or a billion pixels, then you start thinking differently. No more if statements. Latency matters a lot. Throughput, it looks different. And so basically this is, this is the whole gallery is actually shader programming technique in idiomatic JavaScript and HTML. That's how, how it First thing I want to say is I want to thank again you and all the other people who helped me on the Cure Forum and all the other forums. Um, I still remember some of them, actually. Uh, I might not remember the name too clearly anymore, but there are definitely some experts who have helped me along the way, uh, shape my thought. And um, 
I remember still this person who made that uh, crazy 3D demo in Flash with all these polygons. He made a dinosaur and then he made it like a glider and all that. And it was pushing like millions of polygons on like my shitty computer, my shitty laptop back then, which was like 20 years old. And, and once someone shows you that order of magnitude change that gives you this emergent phenomenon, because I was drawing triangles, but I was drawing 10 of them, right? But if you're drawing 10 of them, you can't, you can't think of making a dinosaur model with it, right? But he did that. And it just, it was, it was crazy to me. And, and, um, you know, uh, what would the web, you know, our neighbor community started drawing triangles too, right? And they draw lots of them. They draw enough of them that they discovered this new GPU thing. And then they, that GPU thing kind of spawned an entire ML domain, which has nothing to do with drawing triangles, right? So one thing I will say is, what are we missing out on uh, by drawing tens of rectangles, right? Someone, I, someone uh, when I used to be in a programming language community, there was a conversation where I was like, okay, so you play Call of Duty. You realize they're drawing like billions of triangles in real time, right? And you're telling me you cannot render 10 rectangles on your web app? Really? Like, what, what are we talking about here? So what if we can render a billion rectangle? What, if we, what would that look like? It wouldn't even be a web app anymore, but certainly it could be something worthwhile. There are emerging phenomena in that that we never got to discover because our stack has been so calcified. Um, and one last thing I will say is um, many years ago, there was, a Chinese, <laughs> there was a Chinese Flash form called Flash Empire where the admin of the form. Um, the form itself was using PHP or ASP, I forgot. It was just like black and white or whatever, it doesn't matter. But he made an entire form using Flash. And I can never find that back anymore. I tried days and days, hours to try to find that back. If anybody's listening and knows what I'm talking about, Flash Empire, they made an entire form with just Flash. And I just thought it would be such a nice point to prove um, to people that th this entire software is doable and had all the interactivity and all that. And it wasn't expensive to make. And I'll try to personally keep making these demos to, and show the coding public. Um, but if someone knows how to dig yeah, around. I'll ask around, I'll dig around as well. I do remember what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're referring to as well. Wow. So okay. will, because there weren't too many, it was, you know, you knew Cold Fusion was great for being able to do a lot of backend things. And the Cold Fusion and Flash integration was done really well. There are a bunch of studies on like some great examples of Flash and Cold Fusion being combined and so on. And I do remember there was a, you know, website that was entirely in Chinese that was, you know, back to all the sites that were very similar in like what they showed, just different character set. I couldn't make sense of it, but there's no familiarity. And I do remember there was a forum that was entirely Flash because when you right clicked on it, it was all flash, but it was had niceties to it because back then scrolling was not smooth on our browsers. You know, it was actually like, you know, move like you know, some pixel increments. It wasn't like today where you just like scroll, it just like has this like acceleration and so on. And so that site was new because it introduced a lot of these things in a very traditional boring problem, which is displaying threaded messages. So I'll keep a lookout for that. But you know, in the interim though, it was great chatting with you, Cheng. A lot of fun. And like some the topics you mentioned here are very near and dear to things I think about a lot. And I think a lot of the audience members think about quite a bit as well. And so at some point, I think we should dive deeper into some of them in the future and looking forward to seeing some of your new examples as well. Yeah, I'll be happy to talk about this too. Thank you very much for the opportunity.